Like some of you, I spent countless hours in my life listening to the defender of the Christian faith, Ravi Zacharias. But shockingly, after he died this last year, uh, an expose was done. And it turns out that Ravi um, wasn't what he claimed to be. That he turned out to be a sexual predator and an evil man. And like so many of you, this revelation left me reeling as I fought to try to understand what did I miss? What did I not see? And it provoked this important question that I want to bring up for us this morning as we begin. And the question is this, how can we discern authentic Christians from false Christians? How can we not be deceived by teachers like Ravi Zacharias? What do we look to? Do we look to the things that they believe? Do we look to the habits in church attendance that they have or the rules that they follow in their lives? Do we look at their evangelism or their carefully reasoned faith? Do we look at the books that they recommend and the books that they read? Do we look at their spiritual disciplines or by the power of their rhetoric or the sermons that they preach? Now, it's not in any of those things that we discern authentic Christianity. None of these things are enough to authenticate me or anyone else as a true follower of Jesus. So if all of those things aren't enough, what is? What is the fundamental test that gets to the heart of the genuineness of Christian faith? Well, in our text this morning, John's going to tell us, And we need to hear him. And we need to hear him not just so that we can have good discernment as we look outward at teachers and leaders in the church, but also so that we can be equipped to look inward, to examine our own lives as followers of Jesus, and to be certain that we are walking with him. And we're going to look this morning together at John's most profound teaching about love that he has yet given in this letter. And we're going to look at that teaching about love in three points. We're going to look at the way that true Christians live lives of love because, number one, love is from God. Number two, because God has loved us. And number three, because God's love is perfected through us. So we'll say that again. True Christians live lives of love because love is from God. God has loved us. And God's love is perfected through us. And so here's my prayer this morning. My prayer as we look at this is that we would actually be encouraged in our faith. That we'd be built up as we see the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That we would be encouraged that he is at work in our lives. That as you look to see his love in scripture, we would then be propelled and strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God to live rich, authentic lives as Christians, as his followers, living outward and loving others. That's my prayer. But first, look now at verses 7 to 8 with me and jump into our first point and the reason authentic Christians must love one another. Because love is from God. John writes this in verses 7 to 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I want to read that again. Listen to the word of God. 
Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Christ John's saying something familiar to us here. He's told us before that we must love one another. He's told us that if we are Christians, we must love one another. But here he dives in and makes even more profound points about the reasons that we ought to love one another. Why? Because, he says, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Christy, what John is saying is this. Contrary to the view of our culture, that enlightened societies naturally tend towards increasing love and empathy and care, true world-changing, life-changing love isn't actually natural. John's saying true world-changing, life-changing love is from God. He's saying that at the heart of the Christian faith is a miracle of salvation. He's saying that Christian love that has so transformed this world, it doesn't come from trying harder and doing better and through enlightenment in our world. It comes from a miracle of salvation through what John calls being born of God. And if you've been born of God, you will grow to love like he does. You'll grow up into him to love like he does. Just like a child becomes like their father or their parents as it grows up and matures to look more and more like them. You see, you share your father's biology if you've experienced the miracle of salvation that John's talking about. And your father's genetics then will be impossible to hide in you. John says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. True Christians will love because love is from God and they've been born of him. But it's important for us then to look at Christianity the right way and to validate and authenticate true Christianity through the right test. So I've been taught a few things about shopping for produce and about certain tests that go along with shopping for produce to get the right test. I'm often out there at my local grocer's young brothers and uh, looking up on my phone how to test and verify how I can find a ripe cantaloupe or a ripe honeydew uh, and not be bringing home something that's not very good. It turns out that if you want a ripe orange, you need to test it for its firmness and for its fragrance. And if, on the other hand, you want a ripe mango, you need to test it by its tenderness to the touch and by the color of its skin. And it's important not to get mixed up, not to use the wrong test on the wrong fruit. We need to apply the right test or we'll be left with never ripening mangoes and rotten oranges in our fruit baskets. And in the same way, when evaluating authentic Christian lives, we need to use the right test. But isn't it true that we so often don't? I often don't. Often, I want to test the authenticity of Christian faith by right answers and intelligence. 
by powerful rhetoric, by smiles and likability, or by superficial outward actions in a variety of ways. But this is not what John's talking about in this text. Because in this text, John cuts straight to the heart of the matter. He says, anyone who does not love, it's the bottom line. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But this leads us to another question. If love's so important, according to John, then what does this love look like? Well, to find out, look at verses 9 to 10 with me in our second point. That true Christians love, not just because love is from God, but because God first loved us. John writes this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, on our own, we are a people and a society that lives in death. On our own, we live lives enslaved to selfishness and sin that is at work in our hearts. On our own, we don't live for Christian love, for selfless love for God and for others. But God sees us in our sin. He sees us, he sees us in the death and the consequences that the sin and the selfishness produces in our lives. And he acts by his own initiative in mercy and love to give us life. Look at what John wrote. He said, God sent his son, his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God in love desires that we have life through his son. And how did he do that? How did he act then to bring us this life? He acted by specific actions of extraordinary love. And I want to show those actions to you right now. I want to look at two of them that are in this text that make God's love stand out as something powerful and extraordinary and world and life-changing. The first thing here is that God's love is extraordinary because God doesn't just love those who love him. No, John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. See, if God loved us before we loved him, what were we doing? Well, Paul tells us plainly in Romans 5, verse 8 and verse 10. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... While we were still rejecting God, sinning against God, perpetuating harm and hurt and evil in this world, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. See, Christ City, God's love is unlike our love in every way. And at this point, it is so unlike our love because we don't love like this. You and I naturally love those who are lovable. We naturally love those who are close to us, those who benefit us in some way, those who make us feel good, those who, when we love them, cause us to feel fulfilled and like our life has meaning and purpose because of that love. We love our dogs and our cats and if we're especially self-sacrificial, we love cute, cuddly kids, usually other people's kids, but occasionally our own kids. But when we look at this text, we find 
that it is much more difficult to love those who we in society find undesirable. That's a hard thing. We don't love like God who loves his enemies. Now we struggle to love those who are dirty and sick and impoverished. We struggle to love those who are mentally ill, who are different than we are, or who challenge us in some way. Those things are difficult and challenging for us in our sin. And sometimes when we're around those sorts of people, even though we don't want to admit it and we wouldn't say it, perhaps, we can tend to recoil from them and to look forward to escaping from our relationship and our time with them and to escape the close confines that are safe and comfortable in our own homes where we can be away from them. But God's love is different because he loves the hard cases. He loves the sinner. He loves you and I, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it from him, but because he is love and his love is so great. And this means something incredible for you and I. It means that if you've accepted the good news about Jesus, it means, Christy, that God in love is for you. He loves you. He isn't scared away by any of your failures or your sins. There's nothing that you can do to cause him to stop loving you. In the gospel, he is for you because he is love. The second thing that's so extraordinary about God's love, it's not just that he loves the unlovable and those that are sinners who've rejected him, even while they're still in their sin. No, His love is incredible and extraordinary because it has an incalculable personal cost to God. John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is an important one for you to know and for me to understand as well, for us to, to really grapple with. Propitiation, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone. And the reality is, apart from Jesus, because of our sin, we don't have God's favor. In fact, in our sin, we have his righteous anger. In our sin, we are his enemies. And that might sound shocking to you, It might sound shocking to you that a God of love could have enemies and could be angry at sinners who sin. But let me explain. Friends, John tells us in this text that God is love. That's true, and it's good, and it's beautiful. But that's not all that God is. God is also a God who is just. And that's a good thing because if God were the omnipotent God of all of reality, and if he were not just, that would make him an omnipotent tyrant who would be unpredictable in his justice and his applications of righteousness. But he's not. He is just. But for us who sin, for us who do wrong and who do evil, his justice is bad news for us. Because we are those who hate and who cherish bitterness, who are selfish and greedy for personal gain and ignore the needs of others around us. We are those who manipulate and use one another for our own personal gratification. We are those who bring destruction, suffering, and pain on the world that God in love has created. And honestly, human sin is why everybody's in therapy today. 
Because human beings are experts at sinning and hurting one another. And even those of us who have been hurt are still experts at perpetuating the same hurt we've received towards others and continuing the cycle of sin and harm and hurt in the world that God's made. But there's more here because not only have we done terrible things in our sin, we haven't worshipped God as he deserves. You see, God in his love, he's given us every perfect and wonderful and good thing that we enjoy in this life. He's given us the capacity for pleasure and for joy, for friendship and love, for intelligence and understanding, for innovation and creativity, for architecture and beauty, for relative peace in a world of chaos that we get to enjoy today living in Vancouver, for enough food and clean water to meet our needs, recreation and sport and the work-life balance to enjoy those things. He's giving all of these things to us. And yet in our natural state, in our sin, we don't turn towards him in thanksgiving and praise and honor and worship as he deserves. No, in our sin, we turn away from him and we reject him. But our sin is worse even than these things because our sin isn't just measured by things that we've done or things that we've left undone, or the way that we haven't praised and worshipped God. No, our sin is also measured by who it is that we've sinned against. And that might sound funny to you, but I think you know this intuitively. You know, I, I took my daughter to the park the day we went to, to Jericho Park, and we were out there in the forest, and we were digging uh, through the forest and she found some logs that were on the ground and we opened up those logs and I peeled off the bark and it turns out she really likes bugs. She found all these bugs underneath the bark and was captivated by them, but also began to kill several of them. And I didn't flinch. I didn't turn away for one second. It didn't bother me that she killed a couple of these wood lice that she'd found. But what if it were different? What if it wasn't her killing wood lice, but me at the park at, at Jericho, uh, maybe delightfully killing a duckling, or going over and ending the life of one of the rabbits, or maybe taking someone's dog and putting it to death right there because, well, because I wanted to. Or what if heaven forbid that I murdered somebody? You see, we crossed the line from childhood curiosity to horror with the value of the thing sinned against. In the same way, our sins are heinous and odious horrors, not merely because of the thing that's been done, but because of the holy, omnipotent, and good God that we've sinned against. For our sin against this loving, perfect God, the Bible tells us the price is high. The price is death. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. So here's a question. If God is both loving and just, and we are those as a creation that he's made that he loves, what's he to do? What's he to do in light of our sin? Let me show you the arithmetic of our salvation. Either we all die individually for the payment of our sins against a holy God. 
Or, in the scales of God's justice, someone so infinitely valuable that their one sacrifice for sin could stand in the place of all of humanity's sin is offered. Jesus Christ, the precious Son of God, dying in our place. Look back at what John wrote in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Because God loves you. God sent his only beloved son to be betrayed and beaten and spat at and mocked and tortured and crucified and judged in your place so that you could be caught up and embraced in the loving arms of a good God, a God whose justice is satisfied at the cross to the willing sacrifice of Jesus so that he can shower you in his blessing and his love and his kindness so he can welcome you home, washing you clean from your sin. Christ City, God gave his only son. In Christ City, I have an only son. And I love my son. I delight in him. And it causes me to look at this passage with a new awareness in my own heart. Because let me be clear, nothing could possibly persuade me, no matter what the situation was, to have my son sent to suffer and to be tortured and killed to save you. But our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned together to have God the Son, Jesus Christ, willingly go to the cross and suffer and die for you. Why would he do that? Well, John's clear. He did it because God loves you. Because love is from God. Because God is love. And this leads us to our next point this morning. Why don't you look at verses 11 to 12. We must love because God's love is perfected through us. John writes this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Christ said, it's God's love that he begins to replicate by a miracle of his spirit in his church and those who are truly his people. This is the work of salvation that he is doing. Not replicating a worldly love, not replicating an empty aphorism that love is love, but replicating the very love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, producing it in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. This is a love that looks sin in the face that knows what sin is, that calls sin, sin, and yet is willing to forgive and show mercy. It's a love that reconciles with enemies and offers forgiveness. It's a love that sacrifices and suffers for the good of those who haven't earned it. And John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love, in the same way we also ought to love one another. And then John goes on and he says this incredible thing in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's saying the obvious. You and I can't see God in our lives here on earth. I don't look around. I don't see him. I I behold him through faith. We can't see God except in one place. Except in one place. John is saying that God is seen in his church. He said, he's saying that God is seen in his church when we love one another as he has loved us. Look at verse 12 again. If we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us. He's seen in us. And his love is perfected in us. Christ City, if it wasn't that the Bible said it, I wouldn't believe this. Because John's claim is audacious. He's not just saying that we see God in the church as we love one another. He says that his love is perfected in us. God's own love is somehow perfected in the church loving one another. And this is too hard for you to believe hearing from me. Hear it from the late uh, theologian John Stott. He says it this way. He says, God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us in the Christian fellowship. This is profound. This is mind-bendingly profound. That means that we come to know and see and experience God's love when we love one another in the church. When we forgive each other of sin. We come to know something deeper and truer and purer about God's love and forgiveness of us. When we care for one another's needs, when we reach out to showing compassion and care, To one another, we learn that God is a God who in love cares for us as we come to see and experience his love lived out through one another in the body of Christ. When we welcome one another, welcome strangers, welcome those who are very different from us, as God in Christ has welcomed us, we come to see something about the love of God, a God who welcomes us to himself, not because we are worthy, not because we deserve it, not because he wants to get close to us in a relationship because we have something to offer to him, but because he is a hospitable God, a God who welcomes us close. When we are vulnerable with one another and aren't rejected, when you come to see who I really am in my sinfulness and you still don't reject me, I come to learn something beautiful and pure and true about the love of God. As you love me with God's love for me, I see him. I see him. See, when these happen in this church, when these things happen in Christ City Church in Kitsilano, we are seeing and we are experiencing God's love at work among us. His love, John says, is perfected in us. And through this love, Through this love, we will be witnesses to a watching world that God's love is different. That a love powerful enough to change history, to change human lives for good, is at work. That the salvation of God who brings life to the dead is at work. We will be witnesses through this love. Just as Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. So then in conclusion, we could ask ourselves, why then were we so deceived by Ravi Zacharias? We were deceived because we looked for the wrong thing. We looked at his teaching. We looked at his intelligent answers. We looked at his persuasive arguments. But we didn't look for love. And even if we did, Christ City, we need to realize it would have been hard for us to verify because Christ City, Ravi Zacharias was not part of the local church. And for Christians, that should immediately sound alarm bells all day long. Because it's impossible to grow in love, the love of the true, authentic Christian life. It's impossible for that to increase in you and in me or Rabbi Zacharias or anyone else outside of a deep commitment to the body of Christ. To love, we need to be known. To love, we need to know others. To grow in Christian love, we need to be exhorted and encouraged. We need to be challenged in the truth of God's word. We need to be held accountable. We need to live rich, authentic lives together, life on life with vulnerability and exposure of who we really are in the community of the church. So here's my exhortation to you. If you are on the periphery, If you're watching this and you're someone that that I've not yet met or that we haven't yet talked or you've not yet gotten close in the community of Christ, let me encourage you. Plug in. Join a community group. Look for ways that you can begin to serve. Reach out to someone in friendship and in love. Get close. Have the courage to be free and vulnerable and open. Expose your true heart and confidence in the gospel of a God who loves you. And do that in community so that we can grow together, richly in love. Chris, if you're convicted, if you're convicted today that you lack love, I want to end with good news. Because there is such incredible good news for you. You see, in the gospel, for selfish people like you and I, people that that struggle to love at all. The good news is that God loves us first. That before we loved him or anyone else, he and Jesus loved us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's provided in love all that we need. And all that we need to do is turn to him, open hands to accept the love and the gospel that he freely offers us. How might you do that this morning? Well, your first step would be by confessing your lack of love. If you feel the conviction of of not having this, the first thing to do is to pray to him, to agree with God, to hold open hands before him and say, God, I confess that I don't love you and I don't love others. I confess that in my heart, I am full of selfishness, that this selfishness is sin, that it's wrong, that it's deeply offensive to you who are a holy and loving and good God. Please forgive me. 
And the good news of the gospel is that he will. Just as John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is a faithful God, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the weight of the bitterness and the hurt that you perpetuate in your lack of love, he forgives and washes you clean from as he draws you to himself and accepts you. So confess your sin and then worship him and give him thanks for his forgiveness. And then repent. Take a step of obedience. Don't just say the words of the gospel, turning from sin with your mouth. Turn away from sin in your actions. Take a step of faith. Look for ways that you can begin to serve God in love, to obey him in love by loving others. Step close to the community of faith. Ask God to give you the strength by the power of his spirit to obey him. I promise it won't be easy, but he will be with you, empowering you for love, working in you the miracle of love by his Holy Spirit. You see, love is a litmus test of true Christian faith. And we have everything that we need in the gospel to grow in the love of God. Christ City, let us continue. Let us abound still more and more in loving one another. And will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have so much need of your help. Lord, not just your help, but your, your power and your salvation and your love. God, you have worked a miracle among us by the power of your spirit to cause us to know your love and to grow to extend it outward to others. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to increase in this, that our love would abound still more and more, that we would have eyes that are open to see how great your love is for us, how wide and high and deep and broad, that we'd be overwhelmed and filled up with joy that you have loved us so much in the gospel. And Lord, would you churn our hearts because it's to receive this love in the gospel so that we are churned outwards to increase in love in this church. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.